Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Thank you so much for listening and also for making a commitment to yourself, to your learning and being a rock star technician. You know, we hope that you are doing well. We are firmly coming to the end of January, which is kind of crazy. We, we are your hosts. So I am Yvonne Brandenburg (laughs) and I am joined by Miss Jordan Porter. Hello. Hello. Hey girl. Long time no chat. I know it feels, it feels like it's been a while, which I don't think it has, but it feels like it. <laughs> it's been a whole four days, I think. It's been four days, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> so we, uh, we are recording today. We've got episode 16, which is going to be IBD, so inflammatory bowel disease. And uh, we will start first with some housekeeping. So this week we had a couple of comments. We had Jess Barker who commented actually on last week's episode, episode 15. She said she listened to it today and it was great. We super appreciated that. And she also made a mention on, I can't remember which post it was, but she said that she loves this podcast, only new to internal medicine, and it's been a huge help, makes long drives enjoyable. Which yeah. is great. I, I agree on the long drive thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, is, that is where I listen to all my podcasts. So Yeah. And then we had in our podcast group a wonderful discussion with Matt Braille. I'm really sorry if I messed up your last name. but Oh my God. Yeah. And, and hopefully it's Matt because it is spelled a little bit differently. And yeah. Jordan and I went back and forth. So Matt, if that is not your name, can you please let us know so we don't sound like we're butchering your name every single yeah, time. Like send us a recording of how you say your name. Because he's been, he's been very, like, he communicates with us a lot. So we had a great yeah. discussion about caffeine. We kind of like, it was great on the, on the Facebook group, just kind of going back and forth of like copying and pasting articles and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was, it was a great, he started with a question and we were like, Ooh, we don't know. And then it, it spiraled as it usually does with us into, you know, looking up articles and yeah. finding great references. <laughs> so it was really cool. We got to learn, which was awesome. Yes. And then he also sent us a, an image of him listening in his rental car on his way up <laughs> north to Haleybury, Ontario. So he, we, we, he's yeah. a Canadian listener for us. He's yeah, international. And he, he sent us an image in the emails actually of where he goes to school and there's a lot of snow. And yeah, he I says saw that. that sometimes he gets snowed in and I was like, Oh, it's like, I think it's like 50 something degrees here today. And like, I currently have a hoodie and a long sleeve shirt on and a blanket on my lap and some pajama pants. <laughs> like, right. You're like, like, Oh my God, it's all, it's only 50. I've yeah. been freezing all day. Yeah, I think it's 54 at my place. I was just trying to see what it was, and it's like 54. I'm convinced but. I can see my breath, even though I know I can't. <laughs> like, I just, You're like, oh my God, I'm freezing. He's probably laughing at yeah. us right now because he'd be wearing shorts. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> and then um, Sarah Marie, also on Facebook, said, very informative and great learning to tools, which thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad it's, I'm glad it's helping people, which is awesome. I know. I'm super me too. excited about it. Cause that was kind of our goal when we started this. I mean, like we like to chat to each other and discuss diseases, but our goal was really to like 
help others actually learn something. So that's nice. Yeah. And uh, I mean, honestly, like as I don't know about you, but getting my VTS, part of it was just learning everything I possibly could about this stuff. Yes. Because I like learning. Yeah. Again, hashtag I'm a nerd. So totally right. So this week's episode, so this is a long one. So we're discussing doing part one and part two, because this this isn't something that can be discussed easily in like 45 minutes. I know last week's episode was pretty long, but yeah. I did leave in just some funny parts of that one. And we had a lot of housekeeping to do in that one. So I think this one, though, we'll have to definitely probably split into part one, part two. Yeah. Week. And I think we were we were kind of talking about doing that. And part of it is as we you know, writing up our notes, we, we kind of realized that inflammatory bowel disease isn't necessarily just like one thing. So it's more of Mm -hmm. an umbrella term. And I think that's why we're probably going to end up splitting because there's so much information because it kind of depends on where in the disease process a pet falls into. Um, And this is where we're going to, to see like kind of everything we've already previously discussed. So food allergies, <laughs> trying to rule out lymphoma, uh, intestinal lymphoma, and just mm-hmm. really kind of finding that niche. This is basically the episode of like when you can't rule in <laughs> those other diseases. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it falls it, under it, this, this they, category. That has definitely been mentioned a few times in the books that I have been reading and referencing to do that. And actually speaking of references, in case you guys want to know, obviously, I mean, obviously, do we have to mention it every single time? I think it should just be a given at this point. Linda Merrill's Internal Medicine for Vet Techs, Veterinary Technicians and Nurses book. So, which I know we haven't mentioned it the last couple episodes, but I still put it in our show notes because it's just like a permanent, it has a permanent place in all of our show notes. Like it's, it's my Bible. (laughs) I have like, I have it actually in a three ring binder and I may like take a picture and share it with you guys because I, I put it in the three ring binder and then I actually take chapters from other books that pertain to those chapters and stuck it all together. So especially when I was studying for my BTS, I I really used it, but um, I still use it today because I put like lab forms in there and all sorts of things, which, you know, not everybody does, but, (laughs) but I definitely did. So definitely Linda Merrill's book. The other one is it's the Kirk's and I'm sure mm-hmm. if you work in internal medicine, you know about Kirk's. It is, let me make sure I get this right. It's uh, Kirk's current veterinary therapy. And it, and I was using 15, which I think is the newest one. So that's the other, the other one that I, that I really referenced. And then there's other ref- references at the end, but those two books, I think were the big ones that I used kind of as we were putting together notes for this episode. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the big things I think when we talk about IBD is making sure that we call it by the correct name. So it is inflammatory bowel disease and not irritable bowel disease. Irritable bowel disease is a human term and it's a specific disease. It's not what we call IBD in veterinary medicine. So that's just one of those things that you want to make sure when you're talking to clients, it's inflammatory bowel disease and not irritable bowel disease. So just a big, big sticking point. And I'm really bad about <laughs> interchanging them. So don't be like me on that. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. So 
Inflammatory bowel disease is a collective term. So it describes the small intestines, the large intestines, or disorders of both. So it doesn't have to just be one or the other. And then I'm pretty certain that we've talked that it could be persistent or re- reoccurrent GI signs. Mm-hmm. And then the the key of this too, I think, I'm pretty sure, again, we talked about this when we discussed endoscopic procedures, but the key of this is to try to get evidence of intestinal inflammation and you will get into how, how to do that. But that's kind of how you truly diagnose inflammatory bowel disease is trying to diagnose the type of inflammation that the guts are showing. <laughs> yeah. And yes, it, there's different types. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, we'll, we'll talk about those in, in just a second, but it was interesting because it is when we get our biopsies, right, that histologic changes tells us what types of cells are there. Like is, you know, is it lymphocytes? Is it eosinophils? Is it, you know, do we, do we see other types of cells that are there? And so that helps really get a diagnosis that falls under our IBD category. Um, so making sure we get a biopsy helps. Yeah. Cause some of those different intestinal inflammations can indicate something else, not necessarily mm-hmm. inflammatory bowel disease. It can indicate that there could be some parasites or environmental issues or food allergies. So yeah, mm-hmm. kind of obtaining those intestinal biopsies are pretty important to help us determine exactly the cause for the inflammatory bowel disease. Yeah. The the problem is if you look at most of the current literature, they don't know all the time what causes IBD, which yeah. sucks. And so the problem is, is they think there's a genetic component to it. Mm-hmm. There's also the, the immune system that we talked about a little, I, I can't remember which episode, but we've, we've talked about it a couple of times. So intestinal mucosal immune system that's involved because we're talking about inflammation. And so you've got the inflammatory cascade and that kind of thing, environmental. So Jordan talked about that, you know, the drugs, diet, different things that go into the intestines, right? And mm-hmm. then you've got the other big thing is the intestinal microbiota. Mm-hmm. So um, all the good bugs that are in your guts, if we don't have the right bugs in your guts or we have bad ones, right? It can change the mucosal barrier to either be more permeable or less permeable depending on what's going on. So mm-hmm. did we, we talked about a fecal transplant somewhere, right? Yeah. I'm pretty I'm certain going- that was in the diarrhea episode. Yeah. Too. Was that, <laughs> that was when we talked so- about poop catheters and stuff. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. That one. Um, so when we're doing, when we're talking about the biome, the microbiome, like we take good gut bacteria from one dog and put it into another to help repopulate that good stuff, which is the goal of probiotics too, but sometimes Mm -hmm. probiotics fail Mm -hmm. and aren't strong enough. Yeah, exactly. So many things fall under this category. So I think the most common thing I think of when I think of just purely like inflammatory bowel disease is when we diagnose lymphocytic plasmacytic enteritis. So that's like the type of inflammation that we find on intestinal biopsies when we do endoscopic procedures. Mm -hmm. Um, And that does tend to be the most common type. And then there's eosinophilic enteritis, which as the name suggests, they see a lot of eosinophils. (laughs) Yeah. And I think when I looked at this one, it was like maybe 20, 25% or so were eosinophilic enteritis. Mm-hmm. So lymphoplasmacytic was definitely the highest and then eosinophilic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which I think, do you go into it a little bit further later about how that one's kind of more thought to be 
related to like intestinal parasites? Um, I didn't touch on it, but yeah, that's a really good point, actually, when we talk about eosinophils. And if you remember from hematology, right? <laughs> yeah, when we're looking uh, at blood smears. Yeah, when we're looking at blood smears or, you know, we send out a CBC and we see really high eosinophils, eosinophils are associated with an allergic reaction. So um, we do look for, you know, tapeworms and those kinds of things. So it is more of an allergic reaction mm. and parasites can cause that allergic reaction. So that's, yeah. you know, when we see that we, we check to make sure that we don't see parasites as well. Yeah. Which hopefully we check for that prior to doing a scope, but. <laughs> and hopefully you're again, deworming. Yeah. Yeah. But again, not eosinophilic doesn't mean just parasites. It can mean like food allergies and stuff too. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is a really random question, but I wanted to ask you this. Have you ever seen a parasite? No. In like, and discuss. Okay, good. Neither have I. And I was like, I think I'd freak out a little bit. So I really want to, just for the sake of like, it'd be really cool to see a parasite super like magnified. Just really magnified? No. Like, no. I, yeah. But I would feel really bad that would be like, oh shit, we missed that. <laughs> and we totally didn't deworm this dog. But like, that would be bad. Yeah. That would. I just, ugh. but I would yeah. like to see it. No, nope. <laughs> I want to see nasal mites because that should be like kind of like God, expected. No, God, we don't want to talk about. Okay, I'm sorry I brought it up. No, no. Okay, <laughs> all right, Sh moving on. Change to the next one. Next enteritis. <laughs> Granulomatous enteritis. Yeah, so this one they said was really rare that we typically don't see it, and I honestly I don't know if I've seen one. I can't think of one specifically off the top of my head, but they did say that um, boxers and Frenchies were higher on the um, list that get this, but hmm. um, I, I specifically can't remember one. So yeah, it sounds like something that I would see, I would have seen come back like on cat intestinal biopsies, but hmm. I, I, I guess I'd have to go back and look, but I don't, I don't think I have. So yeah, we, we talked about the food responsive diarrhea in episode 14 mm -hmm. which was our uh food intolerance and yeah and sensitivity episode yep and then we have our antibiotic responsive diarrhea which when we when we kind of touch on this this is what i think of like in general practice like i used to see it all the time where we'd have a dog come in and they'd have gastritis mm -hmm. treat with metronidazole mm -hmm. and gi protectants and send them on their way and it would respond and then they would we wouldn't see him again until something else happened. <laughs> yeah. I, I think of antibiotic responsive. Now that I think about it, I think food responsive is probably the first, the, the most common one. Cause we mm -hmm. put them all on the food and then antibiotic is the second kind of most, most common, I think, because, you know, we're doing metronidazole and then Tylosin afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think those two are kind of interchangeable with the antibiotic responsive and the food responsive, because it's what, I think it's one of those ones where like, especially when you keep seeing a patient for diarrhea that does respond to metronidazole or something, but they keep coming back for rechecks and they're like, well, why do they keep having diarrhea every time we come off of antibiotics? And then we try a food trial. Not mm. we. I mean, like, I, I feel like that seems like a pretty common thing where people will try a food trial after they realize like, it's not just a simple like oh like like if they're coming to us from like a general practice you mean 
I think even like in general had multiple, practice, multiple yeah, like they've had multiple rounds, yeah. and you just you just get that history where they're like every time they're on antibiotics they're great, but as soon as they come off, and then we try a food trial and realize that there's a food sensitivity. Yeah, and and we'll talk about this a little bit later too. Why the the food works on multiple levels. So mm -hmm. we de I, I definitely put notes in for that. So we'll we'll talk about that. But yeah, food food responsive and then uh, antibiotic responsive, I think are kind of the, the big ones. And then the other is steroid responsive or immune suppressing. Um, we call it steroid responsive, but it can also be other immune suppressive medications. I feel this like is this like, is our specialty. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, PRED, everybody gets PRED. And it, it, it may be that you know, we start them off on PRED just to kind of knock down that inflammation. Yeah. And then switch and to something a little bit then, more mild. Yeah. And then switch to, or, or sometimes they can come off the steroids, right? Yeah. And now we've got the food on board and maybe we've got Thailand. And so we've got like this multimodal thing going on to just settle the guts down. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are definitely, we, we, we do those too. Yeah. We do it a lot in cats where we'll start pred if like it's severe. Oh, and then sure. as they like, as it gets better, then we'll try to switch to budesonide to something a little bit more mild. Yeah. Yep. If we can't come off. And it's one of those things that I'm sure I'm certain we're going to discuss the communication needs for this. <laughs> this yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a huge part of treatment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then protein losing enteropathy, um, which is PLE. That's basically where you're losing proteins, serum proteins, like from the gut because mm -hmm. you're losing that permeability within the gut. It's like, and they're not absorbing. Guts. They're also not absorbing the protein nutrients. No, yeah. no, they're not absorbing. We have one recently, um, who the dog has lost actually a ton of weight, but then came in weighing a lot more just due to the amount of ascites and then the amount of edema, like within the dog's Ugh. legs. And oh she was gosh. like super muscle wasted. But we started Pred and Cyclosporin and that dog is, it's been, I think, three weeks. And that dog is a whole new dog and gaining weight, eating great, like looks Ugh, fabulous. Yeah. PLEs yeah, just had, like, are just hard. Yeah. I know. This is probably like, gosh, knock on wood, like the smoothest one that we've had in a long time. Because <laughs> like for yeah. how bad it was coming in, like it yeah. doesn't normally revert that quickly. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Cause, um, we'll talk about this in kind of prognosis area, but low albumin is, which is usually the, the protein that we're talking about mm -hmm. is a poor prognostic indicator, which I mean, yeah. honestly, it makes sense. Cause they're, they're usually so much sicker too. Um, yeah. but yeah, it, they can be, they can be really tough, which is a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the last one that is kind of under this umbrella that we'll, I mean, that we'll mention here is going to be, um, granulomatous colitis, which is to me, that seems like the ulcerative colitis and it's boxers mm -hmm. that, that typically are kind of the ones that are predisposed to that. Um, I mean, obviously other breeds can get it, but that's kind of the classic breed for it. Mm -hmm. So the other, the other big thing, <laughs> I don't know if we hound on this enough, but it's getting right. a proper history. <laughs> Have we mentioned that before? I don't. Yeah. I don't know if we've talked about technicians getting histories from our patients before. Well, yeah. I guess yeah. we'll have to dive into that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We're so funny. We're so, I know. 
we're going to lose people. They're going to be like, ugh, those history know, right? questions. They're like, it's all <laughs> the same. Ask them if, if meds work. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the, the big things with our IBD, and we, and we talked about this a little bit in the workup, is, you know, when we're talking about inflammatory bowel disease, kind of the classic things that we're looking at is they can have one, two, or any of these. So it, it, we just kind of have to look and see how our patients are doing. So when we're talking about vomiting, they can be vomiting bile. They can be vomiting food, water, cats. Remember, remember <laughs> there is no such thing as normal cat vomiting. So we're this really can be good about the full circle thing. <laughs> we're, we're starting to get there, right? Mm -hmm. So cats plus or minus hairballs. Um, so, you know, if, if a cat has a hairball every you know, a couple of months, that's fine. But if you're talking hairballs weekly, that is not normal. I'm so, <laughs> so. happy that you put this next part in. Oh, with the, the dogs and yes, the grass? Because my boss like talks about this all the time about how like, it doesn't just mean the, like, you've always heard those like myths about how like dogs eating grass means that they want to vomit and like that they're just nauseous. But like, you got to think as to like, why, like they have some sort of underlying inflammation that's making them want to either not feel well or want to try to help soothe themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it's, so it's hard because some dogs do it just behaviorally because they like grass. Yes. But some do like eating the grass and then they vomit. So it really kind of depends on what's going on with them. Yeah. I mean, like, given how many dogs I have, I've kind of seen run. Right. I do have one dog who literally just loves like eating grass and lettuce and everything. And then I'll have my one dog who does get a little sensitive and she'll get an upset stomach. She won't eat her breakfast or her dinner and she'll have diarrhea later, but she, mm. I'll find her out under the trampoline eating grass. And I'm like, great, we're going to biopsy you in about a year. Oh, <laughs> oops. Yeah. Well, you have little kids that feed them anything and everything. So again, food trial, not possible in your house. <laughs> not possible. And she's a counter surfer. Like uh, she ate a hamburger yeah. earlier today, like yeah. an hour ago. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But the other thing with vomiting, obvious thing, right? Is if there's vomiting with blood in it, mm -hmm. that is, that is one thing to look for. Or coffee, coffee ground, the quote unquote coffee ground. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Look to it. So you can vomit Frank blood. So it's pretty important to try to get the difference. You can vomit mm -hmm. Frank red blood, or you can vomit the coffee ground looking vomit where they vomit and it's like specks of like brown all within the vomit and it looks and it's like digested blood. Yeah. Yeah. It's gross. But there is a difference and they can indicate different things. So history. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? you want us to get history? <laughs> yeah. Ask these questions. <laughs> yeah. And then we have the other end of things, which is going to be stool. So diarrhea. So small intestine is going to be a large volume, not as frequent. So maybe once, twice a day, but it's large amounts that's coming out. Usually it's watery. There can be melana in there. So digested blood. Um, and again, if you think about it, it makes sense. Like your, your small intestines are freaking out. So they produce a lot of stuff, but the, the colon or the large intestine says, whoa, let's calm this down. I don't need to go as frequent. So it, it, you know, if you, if you think about the large volume of not as frequently, it, it makes sense because the 
large intestine works mm-hmm. right so it doesn't need to get out of there quickly small intestine versus large intestine large mm-hmm. intestine it's going to be if, if there's problems there increased frequency so the the intestines are going ah get it out get it out so super frequent you've got multiple times like six seven eight nine times a day sometimes mm-hmm. more and small you, volumes like yeah small volumes and they're straining right they're just like they or have sometimes they're not yeah and nothing's coming out so mm-hmm. clients will complain that like well they're only like dropping co- like one and, little well and they'll be like they're constipated I get that all yes. the time. And I'm like, are they constipated or are they just trying to go and nothing's coming out? Mm-hmm. No. And my favorite, of course, of this section is just the mucusy coating. I love that. Mm. Yeah. Gross. When it comes out yeah. looking like a sausage casing. Yeah. So Please gross. revert back to episode four where we speak <laughs> about diarrhea. Yay. Um, and then large intestine blood from large intestine is frank blood. Um, so it, ha- it hasn't had a time to digest yet. You know, they, they quantified severe disease as being blood in the vomit or stool and then plus or minus that weight loss. So mild disease, you see a little bit severe disease blood is, is associated with it. Yeah. And that can indicate, like we said, like ulceration, mm-hmm. sometimes masses. Yeah. If you work in internal medicine. Or oncology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the counter, see, this is why I said this. So counter surfing. So yeah. appetite can vary. It can be either increased or it can be decreased. So you can see some of these patients be polyphagic. And part of that is there's a deficiency somewhere. So, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's they're not absorbing the calories or the fat or the vitamins or the minerals or something, something's missing. So they feel hungry. So they're actually going to be eating more versus decreased appetite or not eating at all. You know, their guts hurt or they're, they're gassy. They just don't feel well, or they're nauseous or any of that. So that could be that variety, you know, of appetites Mm -hmm. and then eating graphs. We talked about that. And then pica, that one's always my favorite, where they eat (laughs) weird crap and you're just like, why are you eating these things? But again, it could be associated with like a deficiency in things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We talk about that with our clients a lot about like dogs who've come in for multiple foreign body scopes and we're like, Mm -hmm. well, first off, okay. Side note, cause this is like a little tech rant here. (laughs) If Uh a dog comes in, yes for a foreign body surgery and you do an abdominal explore, please get intestinal biopsies. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Because we did this Wednesday, yesterday, mm. yesterday, a dog had a foreign body surgery and intestinal biopsies weren't taken. So, but the dog was still showing symptoms of like vomiting and just not eating well and drooling and mm. all that stuff. So we scoped it and got intestinal biopsies. However, even though scoping and biopsying that way is a great full thickness is always going to be better. And if you're in there anyway, you might as well just get some samples because especially like I can kind of give a pass on like the first foreign body. Cause maybe it was a fluke and it was a dumb two-year-old lab. But if it's like a multiple foreign body thing where you're just, this is the second time you've cut open this dog speak up and be like, Hey, maybe we should grab some intestinal biopsies. Cause this dog might have underlying disease. Yeah. And, um, I'll throw this side note in there. Cause we had a dog that had four 
GI surgeries last year mm-hmm. and came in right around Christmas for the fourth one. Most of the times you're doing an ultrasound. So mm-hmm. please also look at the adrenal glands. Yes. We talked about dog, that in the Cushing's episode. Yeah. This dog was totally cushionoid, but yeah, you know, you, you can't, you can't guarantee that. So if you're going in anyways and you're cutting into the intestines, it's a good idea to, first of all, hopefully you have a history. Like, do they have a history of, you know, intestinal issues? Yeah. Um, and then just get biopsies because just because you get the biopsies doesn't mean you submit them, Yeah. but you have them. So at least you have them, especially because a, you can hold on to these samples. Like mm-hmm. you don't, just because the client declines sending them out doesn't mean that they can't go in your miscellaneous cabinet that I know every clinic probably has. Yeah. And like they can sit there. So when the dog does come back in for four months later for similar issues, mm-hmm. you can be like, hey, you remember when we cut him open? <laughs> right. And we obtained biopsies and you declined. Well, would you like to send those out now? <laughs> right. You're like, because we still have them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so that was my little soapbox moment because I do think that's like, really important and it can be it can be a time saver and a money saver for clients in the long run yeah Yeah. like if you're already in there Mm -hmm. well not you but your doctor (laughs) right oh it's not me um Mm -hmm. and then and this is one of those ones where they're eating weird stuff um they like licking walls and like Mm -hmm. or carpet um eating mulch and like stuff like that because there's different nutrients in those mm-hmm. areas can can potentially indicate that there's yeah. a deficiency going on so we, um, we, had a, we had a cat client who would lick the bricks of their apartment whenever mm-hmm. he was feeling down and like we'd always like he'd come in and we'd like check him for pancreatitis or something mm-hmm. and like we would always it was weird he was a weird cat but i mean he would be great like when he was on like higher doses of pred and then like huh. if we taper off he'd start licking the walls again <laughs> like interesting yeah it was it was huh. interesting it'd be interesting the to figure out see. what the content of the wall the brick was, was. <laughs> maybe there's more calcium i don't even know dude i got nothing <laughs> somebody's <laughs> gonna be like i know the composition of bricks <laughs> But kind of licking things too, so postprandial pain, so pain after eating, you can see them licking like excessively grooming like their abdomen. Sometimes they'll just like lick the air, do a lot of licking, or or sometimes they'll lick floors and stuff after eating. The other thing is the like the prey position. Mm-hmm. You guys, guys kind of know this one, or the play bow, where they they try to lay down and they stretch. And it's, it's hard because it is different than if they want to play, but it looks very similar, but they don't want to move out of it. So they're doing this weird stretch, you know, prey position where their butts up in the air, you know, but, but it's because their guts hurt. So, you know, those are, those are things that if, if a client's noticing that, hopefully they tell you, or you can ask, you know, do they do strange positions? Do they shift around? Um, so finding out if they're painful after eating can be, you know, it'll, it can be hard, but, but you can look for that in the history too. Mm -hmm. And then you, you kind of brought up ultrasounds. So we Mm -hmm. do do ultrasounds a lot for these patients. Um, and we see thickened bowel loops and you your doctor has probably felt thickened bowel loops on physical exam. 
Um, yeah, which I, I hear them say thick ropey guts. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, Ooh. exactly. Or like, I like, I like the doughy belly <laughs> like oh, description. Yeah. yeah. But don't be afraid to ask your doctor, like, can I feel too? Like you want to be aware of like what they're feeling. That's how you're going to learn. Um, but yeah, on ultrasound, the, again, we, we touched on this where you have certain layers of your bowel and certain layers can be thickened based on the type of inflammation. It's not across the board thickened guts. It's like the specific layers. It could be the inner layer, the outer layer, um, which can also kind of indicate to like, if we see that the outer layer is thicker than the inner layer, we know that we're unlikely to get the answer on endoscopic biopsies. Yeah. And we do recommend full thickness those times, but <laughs> a lot of, a lot of clients lately have been wanting to, yeah, a lot of clients have been wanting us to try anyway. And then we'll get the report back and they're like, recommend full thickness. And I'm like, dang it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is one of my favorite words. Mine too. Oh, I didn't see it up there. So, because I was going to say up in the diarrhea part, this is one of my favorite words, and I'm guessing yours too, because it sounds amazing. Is that why? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's and because I can say it, borborygmus. It sounds like a Harry Potter word, yeah, it does. I remember when I first heard of borborygmus, and I was like, What in the world is that word? So, borborygmus, um, is is just increased gut noises. So, you know, when you like put your head on somebody's stomach and you hear it just like, rawr, 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 and it's just gut noises. I'm sorry. Can, can, can you do that example for me again, please? No, you haven't. I didn't quite. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, so gut noises, fine, whatever. And then flatulence, yes, uh, which is dogs crazy so because we had this dog yesterday. Oh my God. First of all, it was an English bulldog. Of course it was. <laughs> it came in and, and it, and it had PLE. Um, but we were doing the scope yesterday. And like, oh my God. Every time we'd walk into the room, it was like walking into a fart cloud. Mm -hmm. It was just so smelly. And like the doctor's office is close to like the treatment room mm -hmm. and they just ended up like closing the door because the fart oh. just kept wafting in their office. So yeah. <laughs> well, that and like, I'm, I'm sure after the scope, it didn't help because of all the air that you have to put in there. Honestly, he wasn't farting that much. Well, during recovery, he wasn't farting as much. I think because he also wasn't panting as much. Oh, okay. He was kind of sedated. So, you know, he was just like laying there instead of like doing the bulldog pant thing, mm -hmm. pushing out all the fart. So, but I did warn the clients. I was like, so... I was like, he was farting a lot here today. And they're like, oh yeah, he can clear a room. And we're like, yeah. So mm -hmm. tomorrow he may be a little gassier. And they were like, oh, so yeah. Yay. <laughs> yeah. One of my dogs has human farts. It's really weird. Cause I'll blame the kids and like, <laughs> and they're like, it wasn't us. We swear. Oh, and then nice. Zara will like, cause she doesn't, she doesn't like do the dog thing where they like whip around and look back at their butt. Like she mm. just like, we'll just She's casually. Like, Who was that? Yeah, exactly. She'll just casually walk by and fart, but it sounds like a human and it's nice. like <laughs> moving on. Mm -hmm. So weight loss. Um, mm -hmm. I always ask clients if their pets have had recent weight loss or if it's been gradual. And this is also really important to ask, have they been trying to get their pets to lose weight? Yes. Because if they're not trying and it's happening 
and there wasn't a change in diet, you know, that, that is definitely a red flag as well. Cause that means the dogs not, or cats aren't absorbing nutri- nutrients the same way. So we want to know about that. Yeah. Um, and, and we talked about hypoproteinemia. So usually it's albumin that we're talking about. Um, and when albumin, because that is the biggest protein in the blood, when that decreases, it makes it so that water can leave the vasculature easier, which is why we get ascites, sub-Q edema, pleural effusion. Um, so the, the lower the protein, the more fluid you're going to see outside of vessels. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, you know, like when we think about it, you know, you've got an animal with low protein, you give them plasma, it helps absorb because you're talking about a hyper hypertonic solution. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, there was a number in the book though, that said it was like, if albumin was less than like 1.8 or two or something like that, that that's when you usually start seeing edema or ascites. I remember that. Yeah, from studying. I'll to, I will have to look at it exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like the ones that I've seen, it's like 1.8, 1.7 in the most. Yeah. Seeing we're seeing ascites. Yeah. My dog who's like recovering now, I think her albumin's up to 2.5 now. Oh, that's good. It's almost Um, normal. Well, depending on the range, but yeah. Yeah. We want to see her around three. Yeah. Is where we're hoping. And she's on her way there, but anyway. Nice. So moving into diagnostics, so many diagnostics. Yeah. Which we've already kind of briefly touched on. Yeah. So you kind of talked about this earlier today too, or earlier in this episode. Um, diagnosing IBD is a diagnosis of rule outs, which mm-hmm. is very frustrating for clients because we want to give them a definite answer, but we have to make sure they don't have all these other things that can cause inflammation in the guts. So, you know, it's, it's a bummer. <laughs> But you do have to go through a lot of these things to make sure it's not, you know, one of these things causing the inflammation. Yeah. yeah. Which I think if we like explain to clients that like, yes, we're doing a lot of tests and yes, a lot of them are coming back negative, which is great. Mm-hmm. But like, and I'm sorry that it's costing you a lot of money, but it is leading us to an answer because it is, it is a disease of exclusion. Yeah. It's hard. It's frustrating for clients for sure. Yeah. Which would, I mean, it's fresh. Think of when like you and I go to the doctor, I know for like when I was going through my autoimmune stuff, like, and I kept going to the doctor, mind you, I was a little frustrated because not a lot of tests were being done and nobody could give me an answer. Mm. But it was one of those things that once tests started getting done, like I still wasn't really getting any information or any answers, but I also, there was very poor communication in my own case, just because nobody was explaining to me what we were were ruling out and what was still on the table well and that i mean unfortunately that's yeah (laughs) i was gonna say it's doctor communication right which is why we strive to do better yeah which is why we're also there to help interpret sometimes yeah because sometimes the doctors tell them but they don't get what the doctor is telling them because they use doctor ease yeah like let me translate that for you yeah Mm -hmm. um so when we're talking about the rule outs, um, so parasites, so we'll, we do, they do talk about doing serial 
um, fecal floats because if you remember from parasitology way back when, or maybe you're in school learning about it now, um, worms shed eggs at different points in their life cycle. So just because you have one quote unquote negative fecal float, that doesn't mean they don't have a parasite. So you should be saying, you know, this fecal float screen was negative or no ova or parasite seen at this time, right? Mm. Instead of saying, oh yeah, nope, they don't have any worms because you don't actually know. So we yeah. always try to say no ova or parasite seen at this time, right? And so doing serial fecal floats is, is ideal. The other thing too is um, we do a lot of PCRs. So we do like the diarrhea PCR, mm -hmm. which includes like a Giardia snap test from IDEX and, and some of those mm -hmm. things um, and covers like E. coli and, and Corona and, and a lot of those, those other infectious diseases that you want to make sure they don't have before putting them mm -hmm. on like an immune suppressing drug because that yeah, will only exactly. make things worse. What are you talking about? I know, it seems right? fine. God, it's totally fine. And then kind of like we talked about in the food trial episode, you definitely want to try food trial where you try to eliminate certain proteins and you want to go down to a single source protein or a hydrolyzed protein diet and try to see if your patient responds to that. And the majority do. Mm -hmm. So it's something to good to start off with that is fairly easy uh, but again case by case because that would not work in my house so unfortunately <laughs> yeah and and kind of to go along with that is if you do have like a family that has little kids and you're like we just know that food is not going to be something that we can eliminate because kids drop goldfish crackers right and all these other things that this is not a single source protein. So having that communication with a client is huge to make sure that they understand, well, you're going to have flare ups that happen more often depending mm -hmm. on what they eat. So we're going to have to use drugs to combat that inflammation mm -hmm. instead of just, you know, hoping that it's just diet that can knock it down. Yeah. Which in, in that being though, that if, if I were to need to do a food trial, I, it, it would be important for someone to kind of explain to me or a client in a similar situation that your food trial is going to work, but you also do have to be aware, like Yvonne said, that, that like when something outside of the diet is given that you're going to have a flare up, but that doesn't, that shouldn't deter them from trying a food mm -hmm. trial, yeah. like because diet can work the majority of the time. Yeah. And you know, yes, one little bite of something can set them off, but it's better than having it be 100% of the time constantly yeah. inflamed. So it is, it is a good idea to even, even though it's not ideal, it's going to be better than, than not trying the food. Mm -hmm. And, and I think I talk about it a little bit later too. some of the other benefits to these diets, not just the antigen response, but there are other yeah. reasons for it. So. Um, and then antibiotic responsive. So we talked about that, you know, did, did they try metronidazole? Cause I feel like metronidazole is kind of the go-to for everyone. Yeah. I feel like because it's the it has the anti-inflammatory plus the antibiotic and some antiparasitic stuff. So, you know, did the metronidazole work in the past? You know, were they on it and it worked? Have we tried Tylosin? 
which is a chicken antibiotic, which cracks me up that it's a chicken antibiotic, but it is. Um, and there's some other antibiotics that they talk about um, that we can use as well. But those Which are kind of the, the big ones. Tastes really bad. We haven't. Why stop tasting the medications? No, I'm just. <laughs> I'm just saying, like it's one of those things that when you open the container and you're like dumping it out in the it like. I don't. No, I'm gross. No, stop like, inhaling and smelling <laughs> and tasting the food, the meds. I haven't. Oh. We actually stopped caring tylosin because now we just call it like have it compounded so like yeah. other thing is foreign bodies make sure that your pet doesn't have a foreign body and that's what's causing the gi issues toxins you know there's so many plants that are out there that can cause gastrointestinal upset so you know i've definitely sent people to the aspca um, website to look at toxin or toxic plants to make sure that's not a problem um, we talked about lymphoma and other neoplasia in last week's episode. So episode 15, mm -hmm. we talk about all that. We want to make sure they don't have pancreatitis. So we're doing our ultrasound anyways. We're going to look for lymphoma. We're going to look for neoplasia. We're going to look at the pancreas. Addison's disease, the doctors will measure adrenal glands, make sure we can find them. The other thing to check for is FELV or FIV because compromised immune systems right can cause vomiting diarrhea and other things can cause inflammation so we make sure to rule out that because um, that can make things tougher to treat which we talked about as well that feline leukemia cats can actually develop leukemia or uh, lymphoma so yes yeah that's right we did talk about that last episode and then thyroid disease low thyroid can slow metabolism and all that stuff, which can kind of mimic some of this inflammatory bowel disease um, things, as well as hyperthyroid cats, right? Because they're constantly hungry and they're not, they're losing weight. So it sometimes can mimic. So again, we're checking a T4, see what's going on. And then just history, what's worked, what hasn't worked. Um, have they seen flare-ups when they feed one particular food versus another, you know, it, when they were on a steroid for something else, all of a sudden they felt better. So those are all things to get in our history. And also if the pet's been dewormed, I feel like that's helpful. Mind you, we most of the time deworm again anyway, but it. Yeah. Just... Yeah. And, and deworming is not a bad thing. So, um, especially if your pets aren't on like a monthly consistent heartworm and flea prevention that does mm -hmm. your deworming for you. We'll typically, or if clients say, well, we missed a couple months or we stopped it in the winter. Mm -hmm. Like, we'll just go ahead and deworm again. Yeah. And cats, you know, if, if you've got a hunter, it's yeah. not a bad idea to just deworm them because they could pick up all sorts of fun things. So the other normal things, right, is lab work. So we're going to do chem, CBC lights, fecal floats for these guys. We talked about checking an ACTH. <laughs> or at least arresting cortisol. Arrest, or at least arresting cortisol. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then we could do fecal cultures we could do a pcrs um we talked about the gi lab so the cobalamin folate tli pli i tend to send those out to tamu so texas a&m mm -hmm. i think you said you do as well right yeah yeah because if Always. you do the, which, the big panel it's cheaper <laughs> yeah then which someone had commented on i think 
the diary episode side note mm. that that link wasn't working but tamu had just like redone their entire website so i did correct that if anybody goes back to that oh. if you have any problems please let me know okay but yeah that link that i'd paste posted in i think the diarrhea episode oh man Bummer. had okay. been like revised on tamu's end so i did fixed it so yeah we we usually send out like the full the the big gi panel which has all four of them so you're doing that uh t4 ACTH, FBLV, fib so those are all the lab work that you're going to be doing for imaging so we talked about that ultrasounds right we're gonna notice gut thickness look at for any effusion throughout the abdomen we're gonna look at the gut motility is there a distension of the guts? Are there masses? And we can do ultrasound guided aspirates. Although we don't do that for generalized thickness, but we will mm -hmm. for like a focal area. And then x-rays. X-rays are good for diffuse disease and it can look for foreign bodies. So those are, oh, ultrasounds as well for foreign bodies. Um, but sometimes you can see things depending on what it is better with x-ray versus ultrasound. Yeah, like things in the stomach are tend you tend to have better visualization via X-rays versus ultrasound, mm -hmm. just because the more gas in the guts, the harder it is for the ultrasound to actually see things. Yeah, definitely. Procedures. So we talked about endoscope. Um, so biopsying with that, surgical biopsy, and then the histopath. So plus or minus par. And we talked about par last episode, right? Yeah, yeah, and the lymphoma episode just trying to differentiate between what type of lymphoma. Yeah. And then the big thing to remember is, I think we talk about this, is for tech skills, like you're going to be involved in all of this stuff. So making sure you know where to find your lab forms, how, you know, what tubes to, to grab and, you know, making up estimates for clients and all that stuff. So I think this is all very tech intensive things. Yeah. Especially um, like the discussion with the clients, like yeah. The discussion about like what tests we're planning on running and why, because mm -hmm. that's important. You're likely to get better compliance from owners when you explain why you're recommending a test um, versus just saying, we want to do this $300 PCR poop test. Right. They're like, excuse me, but my, but my PDVM just ran a fecal and it was fine. Yeah. Like, At our annual everything. check. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I do find that important. To I think most of this is just client communication. However, yeah. if you are going to do a fecal transplant, learning how to blenderize poop and strain it is pretty important. <laughs> oh, make sure that it is turned off when you plug it in and make sure <laughs> there is a lid on top of that blender. Gloves and goggles and a gown. And sometimes we just don't let the doctors touch the blender. I mean, that's the main takeaway from this right now. Okay, so you haven't heard about Sibday or Fibday. So I heard about it recently. Um, my work will be, hopefully, <laughs> um, participating in a drug trial type, type, type deal. And, and so they wanted us to, you know, because when you're doing any kind of trials for anything, they need it to be very specific on like how everybody's mm -hmm. doing it and monitoring and stuff. So the, the Sib day and Fib day. So Sib day is the canine inflammatory bowel disease activity index. And then Fib day is feline IBD activity mm -hmm. index. So basically what it is, which is actually, it's pretty cool. So what they have is they basically 
grade your symptoms from zero to three for each of these um, variables. And then you add all those numbers together and the higher the number, the more severe the disease is. So the first thing is attitude and activity. Mm -hmm. Then you have appetite, vomiting, stool consistency, stool frequency, and weight loss. So you score them between zero and three, zero being normal, no changes, you know, everything's good. One being mild change, two being moderate, and three being severe change. So <clears throat> what you do is you, you score each of those sections with a zero to three, add those all together. Whatever number you get, that is your SIB day score. So zero to three means clinically insignificant of disease. Like you're, you're basically, you're fine or well, your inflammatory bowel disease is not a problem. A four to five means mild IBD, six to eight is moderate IBD, and nine or greater is severe IBD. So you have one, two, so there's six variables. So the highest score you can get is going to be 18. So hopefully you do not have 18s, but you can. Anything above a nine is considered severe. The cool thing about this is... <clears throat> If you're using it, you can use it in a clinical setting as well as clients at home mm -hmm. to help kind of monitor where they're at. Because we obviously want the SIB day score to be as low as possible for our patients um, because, and it, and it can fluctuate. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, it's kind of a cool way to see where they're at <laughs> and then have them be able to track it. Um, so you can use like the journal. So the pet health journal, you can use that, um, or clients can use that at home to kind of track their score. They can do it, you know, once a week or something like that. You can track their SIB day score during each appointment. Um, so if you've got an IBD patient, you can check and see where they're at. And it's nice because it, it's a way to just monitor a lot of variables, but have it be a consistent way to monitor it, which is kind of cool. So, um, so yeah. I will, um, uh, I definitely, we definitely have the link for, for the journal article from JVIM. So journal of veterinary internal medicine, it came out mm -hmm. in 2003, um, and it talks about how to score. So we'll definitely link to that journal article and, and you can see it. It's, you don't have to pay to see this one. It's, it's a free, free article. Um, and the, and I'll post like a picture of like the little chart. And then we'll also add in the technician or yeah, the technician treasure trove, um, a handout that you can use in the clinic or even send home with your clients. So yeah, cool. Yeah. I thought it was pretty cool. I use the term SIB day for canine and feline, but obviously technically it's fib day for cats. <laughs> it seems fitting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it should, but. <laughs> okay. So I think because looking at the clock, <laughs> we have now been do talking about IBD for almost an hour. So we're thinking this would be a good place to kind of break. So we'll talk more next week about treatment and um, kind of what goes along with that because there is a lot of options for treating. Mm -hmm. So I think we can definitely do an episode on that. But I think for today, We'll kind of leave you guys with the workups, what we're looking for, history, um, 
you know, what kind of falls under IBD. I think, I think that's a good place to leave off because mm-hmm. otherwise this could be crazy. <laughs> get ready. Get ready. Cause next week we're going to talk about some nutrition. Yeah. Which is exciting. <laughs> um, I would yeah, say that's the feeling I'm feeling. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Shh, don't tell them that nutrition is amazing. <laughs> it's super important. Yes. It's the tip of the week. So for this week's tip of the week, because um, we did not talk about the treatment stuff, I'm going to say the Sib Day score. Yes. With that, because I feel like that's a good tip. I know um, I don't use it nearly as much as I probably should. Yeah. I didn't even know about it. So, well, I, I want to say I've probably read about it. I had to have read about it, Yeah, um, I mean, but we don't use it. So. Yeah. I think, I think I've seen it somewhere, but I had no clue what it was. Yeah. Um, and then learning about it, I was like, oh, the SIP day score, that's pretty cool. So I think, you know, we'll, like I said, we'll put a, we'll put some links in the show notes for it as well as, um, in the tech treasure trove, we'll have the, the chart for you guys to use, um, for, for doing SIP day or FIB day because it's canine and feline scoring. So to help with your clients as well. And now for the question of the week. I think, I think what we're going to go with for the question of the week this week is what's your personal experiences. And as Jordan so lovely pointed <laughs> out, not you physically, personally, but personally, as in your animals or animals in your family, um, what is your experience with, um, inflammatory bowel disease? Like, do you, do you have pets that you know for a fact had it or, you know, after listening to this, do you go, Huh. I, <laughs> I should go get that test done. Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and are there any surprises that, that, you know, you didn't really think of that makes you wonder a little bit about the inflammatory bowel disease? So, you know, what are, what are your, what are your experiences with the IBD? In the veterinary medicine. In the veterinary <laughs> not in the human. We, people are gross. We don't want to hear about it, but animal wise. <laughs> yes. I definitely am not trying to off put anybody's personal things here, but I don't want to hear about human personal. IBD. No, I, um, I'm good. I, <laughs> I work with someone that I hear enough stuff about sometimes that I'm like, really? But it's a joke now. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's frequent poop talk in our line of work and I yeah. have children, so it's like a common conversation. I just legit. Yeah. I want to <laughs> know about your pets and their GI distress. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm good. I'm ready to talk at you next week. Sweet. All right. Well, on that lovely note, I hope everyone has a fabulous week. Let us know about your, you know, experiences with animals and IBD and uh you know we will talk to you guys next week just super exciting all right guys have a wonderful week keep learning and we will talk to you next week bye thank you for listening to today's episode of the internal medicine for vet techs podcast If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? 
please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.